Take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We started this last week and we will continue uh, this week and on through it over the next several months probably. No, probably over the next several months. Um, I want to start out by saying something. <laughs> uh, last Sunday night, if you were here, I, uh, I told you I made an error. You remember that? Did y'all figure out what it was? Well, somebody came up to me after the service and said, maybe the error you made was to say that you made an error. And they were right. I did something that for, I've been preaching for, goodness, almost well, about 38 years. And when I... <laughs> Thank you. And I, I've always, and I've had opportunities to teach young preachers and do some things with them. And one of the things I always tell young preachers, Brother David, is never, I tell Sunday school teachers this too, never, ever do preparation in the pulpit. You know, don't ever do theology in the pulpit because you always get in trouble. And I, in introducing this and trying to talk about the date of it a little bit, I made the comment that, that most scholars, and I, I include myself with those scholars, not the, as a scholar, but as agreeing with them, place the date of Galatians very early because there is no mention of the Jerusalem council in this letter. And I'm preaching along, and I look over in the second column there on mine, and it says the council at Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, I start, a sudden I, I prepared, I know what I prepared, and I start doubting myself. I said, oh, well, oh, I better tell them I've made an error here. Better had I just kept my mouth shut. That is not the Jerusalem council, and that is not the inspired text. That's just a note, some bad translator put in there and mess me up so um, so uh, I'm here to confess that my error was saying that I'd made an error and I'll try to not do theology and Bible exposition on the fly uh, in the future since I've been taught and have taught others not to do that but anyway we'll talk about this council at Jerusalem when we get to it but that is not the Jerusalem council that's mentioned in the book of Acts all right now then, confession, as we say, is good for the soul. It's bad for the reputation, but I got it off my chest. All right. Galatians, we started last week with introductory material. We read the first 10 verses. Tonight, I want to go back and look at verses 6 through 10 again and kind of make some application in those from where we, we broke them down a bit last week. But I want to talk to you a little more about them in, in totality. So listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Galatia. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You're deserting him for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, which Paul acknowledges later that he was trying to do at one point in his life, if I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There's a really unusual 
factor in the beginning of the letter to the Galatians. It's unlike any other letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. In every other letter that Paul wrote, he starts out, for instance, to the Ephesians or the Philippians uh, and even the Corinthians by praising them for something in their midst and by praying for them. He, he starts out Ephesians with a glorious and beautiful prayer that runs sentence on, end on end for a long time, just praying for God's glory and God's peace and God's manifestation of himself in that church. And, and then he says they've been following in grace and truth and love, and, and they, they've shown all the marks of a church. And he just praises them and prays for them. He does not do that with the Galatian Christians. He talks in the very beginning about having been called as an apostle, not through men, but by God himself. <clears throat> and then he says in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. He kind of, in verses 3 and 4, gives a restatement of the gospel there. Who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. He, he begins this letter not by saying even a, a, a very formal howdy or hello, but by simply saying, here is the gospel in a nutshell. And then he says in verse 6, I am amazed. I am in a quandary, the word could easily be translated. I am perplexed by the fact that you are deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. And you're doing it so quickly. And the word quickly there carries with it the idea of casually. You're, you're doing it so nonchalantly. Uh, right after having come to faith in Christ. Evidently, these Judaizers moved in there very quickly and began to distort the gospel there at Galatia. And people were just listening to them and saying, well, maybe they're right. He, said, they, he says in verse 7 that these are people who are disturbing you. And again, that, that Greek word for disturbing there can, can carry with the connotation of, of confusing you. They're throwing a lot of things at you, a lot of history, a lot of Old Testament, which the Old Testament is the Word of God. But they're throwing it at you in such a way that it's confusing you about the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're turning your back on it, it seems like. You're going back into the old rituals and the old ways that, that God has saved you out of. One of the amazing things about the history of the Christian church is that throughout its history, the church's greatest troublemakers have not been those outside who oppose and ridicule and persecute the church, but rather their greatest troublemakers have been those who are inside who try to change or modify or flower up the gospel. It's been those with the, with, from the inside who have said, listen, I want to make it a little more attractive. I want to make it a little more interesting. I want to make it you know, a little more acceptable to the world. And so they take the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, risen from the dead, and they start trying to add something to it that says, you know, it just doesn't appeal to man enough because what happens here is the gospel says God is doing for you what you can't do for yourself, and man likes to think he can do something for himself. And so do women, by the way. And, and so that's a lot of what happens in the church. And it's they who trouble the church more than, more than others. I think back to Elijah. Again, one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament. When he approached Ahab. And Ahab looked at Elijah, who was the prophet of God, preaching the truth of God, proclaiming the, the supremacy of God. And, and Ahab looks at Elijah. And what does he say to him? 
He said, is that you, O troubler of Israel? And Elijah's standing there saying, well, I'm just coming in the name of the Lord. I'm just coming to proclaim the truth of God. It's not me that's troubling Israel, King Ahab. It's you that's troubling Israel because you have taken God's people and led them astray back over toward the idols of Baal, of Baal, and, and the Asher, and other false gods and false idols. Well, that's what's happening here. Paul says, it's amazing to me, it's, it's, it's perplexing to me that you can so easily say, well, I'll just give up the grace of Christ and I'll try to do it on my own again. I'll try to earn my salvation before God. The devil loves to disturb the church. And, and if, he, if he can't disturb the church by leading them and entice them into sin, many times he will do it by deceiving with false doctrine, knowing that that once a church or once a Christian has been deceived by false doctrine, it's very easy then to entice them into sin. Because it's doctrine, it's what we believe, it's the foundations that we stand secured to that keeps us from stumbling and keeps us from falling. And, and it's nothing new. I mean, I mean, it's nothing, it's old, and it's also new. Uh, it's still going on in our day. I was interested last week when the uh, Episcopal Church's General Assembly opened. That's the, the main Episcopal body. And their opening address was given by their bishop, their presiding bishop, which is kind of the, not really the pope, but the, the top person in America, uh, calls all the shots for the Episcopal Church. And the bishop, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Reverend Catherine Jefferts Shorey, made this statement in a, in a special point of denouncing what she labeled as the great Western heresy. This was the great Western heresy. It's the teaching, in her words, and I quote, that we can be saved as individuals, that any of us alone can be in right relationship with God, end quote. This is, she says, individualistic focus that she says is a form of idolatry. Now, we deconstruct that a little bit. There's a part of that, if I, if I understood her, if I knew that she had the right presuppositions, I could say okay to some of that. We are not saved in an individualistic way that sometimes we make it, you know, it's just me and God and nobody else. I mean, we are saved to be a part of the body of Christ. We're saved to be a part of the church. That's true. But I know her presuppositions are that you're not saved individualistic, but rather that all of humanity is saved because she's a universalist. And so she says it's a heresy, it's an idol to say that we can be saved individualistically. We don't need that kind of salvation. We're all saved anyway by the covering of Christ. We're all covered by the blood of Christ, whether we believe or whether we don't believe. Ultimately, we will all be saved. Well, that's a troubling thing to the church that believes that the word of God is true and that Paul's even going to talk about here that you, you have to come to faith in Christ and your mother can't do it for you and your pastor can't do it for you and your Sunday school teacher can't do it for you and your best friend can't do it for you. It is an individualistic thing in the sense that there has to be faith on the part of the individual to believe in Christ. Now, once you are saved, there is to be that corporate expression of that salvation. We come together as the body. We, we observe the Lord's Supper together as an expression of our communion with Christ and with one another around the body of Christ and around the blood of Christ. But there are all sorts of twisting things 
in our day. I know one preacher several years ago when I was in Florida declared that uh, he had a new revelation from God. That, uh, you know, we've talked about the Trinity for all these years. But what we didn't realize was there's a Trinity within the Trinity. And so there are actually nine persons in the Godhead. The Father has three, the Son has three, and the Holy Spirit has three. So there's nine of them all within that. Of course, if you really count that up, the Father, you know, it could be 12 even, but he kept it at nine. But my question was, well, if that's the case then, don't those three also have to have three? And those three have to have three. Isn't there an infinite number in the God? I mean, it's it crazy. But he needed something new because he had some tapes he needed to sell. And so he came up with this whole new doctrine God had told him. He later said he was wrong. And some of us, he was just pastored about five miles down the road from where I pastored in Orlando. And some of us wanted to call upon him and say, do you realize you proclaim to be a prophet given new testimony from God, given a new word from God as a prophet of God, do you realize now that we are responsible to stone you to death because you were wrong? Because in the Old Testament, if a prophet comes with a word from God and he proves wrong at one point, just one point, he's a false prophet, which this guy happened to be. But the truth of the matter is, twisting the gospel bringing something along, these people happen to say, you need to go back to Judaism to get back to Christ. You need to go back and go through the, the rituals and the rites to become a Jew, circumcision, and, and all the feasts and all the festivals and all the, the things to do. And then you can come to Christ and you can really be a Christian. But you have to do all these things first. There's a, there's a part of evangelicalism today that although they don't sound quite that obvious, they will say, oh, but, you know, you have to do this and you have to do that to be saved. It's not just by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not on the basis of faith alone, sola fide. It is is about a matter of, of you have to earn it in some way. You have to do certain things and jump through certain hoops in order to really be right with God. And Paul would say to them today the same thing he said to these Galatian heretics. He would say, let them be accursed. It's the grace of God. He says, it's the God who called you by the grace of Christ. Don't turn from him and don't believe Another. I mean, I told you last week, Paul speaks here with an attitude that just is rather angry. It's rather drastic language. It's, uh, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, a fierceness that Paul gets him here. He doesn't have that often, but when he does, it kind of reminds me of when Jesus went into the temple and, and drove the money changers out of the temple. Jesus didn't go in there and say, now you folks ought not be doing this. He went in there with a quip. And he turned their tables over and he swung at them and he said, get out of here. You've made my father's house. It ought to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And he drove them out. He didn't do it meek and mild. He did it with righteous anger. Paul has a righteous anger here. But you might ask the question early on in this book, why did Paul feel so strong about this, so strongly about this, and use such drastic language? I think there are two reasons. One the glory of Christ was at stake. The glory of Christ was at stake. Paul had preached and taught them that salvation is through Christ alone. You don't add to it. You don't take anything away from it. You don't add baptism to it. 
If you say to somebody that, well, you, you, you have to trust Christ, but you have to be baptized to be saved, then you are adding to it, and you're taking away from the glory of Christ. If you say, well, you, you have to do certain, uh, you know, have to tithe in order to really be saved. Now, I believe you ought to tithe. Don't get me wrong. But, but that's not a part of your salvation. That's a part of your obedience. That's a part of your stewardship. That's a part of your discipleship that follows after it. But if you tie it in with being saved, then you are distorting the gospel and you're taking away from the glory of Christ. And Paul says that's what they're doing. But the second thing that reason he used such drastic language and was so seemingly angry here was the good of man's souls are at stake, not just the glory of Christ. But if they believe that they can can go back and follow the rituals and go through the steps and be saved by that, and that adds to what Christ has done, then, then they are not really believing in Christ alone. Listen, if you believe that you're saved and God likes you a little better because you're here tonight, and you look around and you say, boy, there's a lot of people God not, doesn't like very much tonight. If you think that's a part of your salvation, you may or may not be saved, quite honestly. Because it's not in, you're not saved by church attendance. You're saved by faith in the sacrifice of Christ alone. Don't forget that. And if you start telling people, well, you can be saved if you'll do this, this, and this, and trust Christ, then you're deceiving them. And you're being a deceiver because it's by Christ and in Christ alone. You say, how can we recognize the true gospel? How can we recognize if something has been a, a distortion of that gospel? It's all right. Well, there are two things. I think you look at the substance of the gospel message, and you look at the source of the gospel message. First of all, is, it, is what you're hearing, is it the gospel of grace of God's free and unmerited favor? Is what you're hearing the proclamation that God has, by His grace, touched lives and drawn them uh, to faith in Christ. You know, Paul says to turn from Him who called you in the grace of Christ is to turn from the gospel to a different gospel, which is not even a gospel. There's not really another because there's only one. So he says don't follow after things that add or take away to just the purity of the gospel of Christ. He who was lived, was crucified, was buried, was raised again in his glory. You know, whenever men, whenever teachers start exalting man, implying somehow that they can contribute anything to, the, to your salvation by your own morality, your religion, your philosophy, or your respectability, then the gospel of grace is being corrupted. Anytime someone says you can, you can be a part of it, you can contribute to what Christ did as a finished work on the cross, then you are sacrificing the true gospel for a man-centered gospel. The true gospel magnifies the free grace of God. Anywhere you find it in the Scripture. That is the very substance of the gospel. That's what we'll look at tonight as we come to this table. When we look at the bread and when we look at the, the fruit of the vine, we will look at a symbol of, of the totality of the gospel. His body was given as a sacrifice. His blood was shed to seal that new covenant. 
and we will see in visual form a testimony of the gospel message, testifying to what he did on that cross when he gave himself as our substitute and as our sacrifice, free, unmerited grace that he poured out on those who believe. Then you have to look at the source of the gospel, not just the substance. And the true gospel, understand this, the true gospel is the gospel of the apostles of Jesus Christ as recorded in the New Testament. Listen, that's why if you have a favorite Bible teacher, even if it's your pastor, you ought to check everything he or she says by the Word of God, by the, by the teaching of the apostles. Start in the New Testament. You may have to go to the Old Testament, get some of it, and look at it. But even in their Old Testament teaching, evaluate it by what the New Testament says about that Old Testament expression. Because you can become a Judaizer in the 21st century by going strictly to the Old Testament and saying, well, here, you, know, you got the Ten Commandments. you got to obey the Ten Commandments. Here, you got the you got sacrifices that have to be made. You ought to be making sacrifices. Those were all fulfilled in Christ. And don't ever forget that. The true gospel is what is in the New Testament. It's what is recorded in the apostles' doctrine and the apostles' teaching. The norm, the criteria by which all systems and opinions are to be tested is what I would call the primitive gospel. The primitive gospel. Now, I realize in our day we, won't, we don't want primitive, we want progressive. We want something new. We want something a little more exciting but every opinion and every system of theology and, and every teaching ought to be tested in light of the primitive gospel, the gospel preached by the apostles and recorded for us in the New Testament. Anyone who rejects this gospel, this truth, is himself to be rejected. That's why Paul says, if someone comes to you and teaches something contrary to what we have taught you, what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. He is to be rejected completely, no matter how charismatic or charming or entertaining they may be. The gospel is all that matters. You know, I, I, this morning, I, I don't know about you, but I, I got just full of it this morning during the worship during the worship service. You know, I mean, we opened with the Word of God. We had the Word of God interspersed several times within it, and, and we ended with the Word of God, and, and that's the focus of what we do here. I told somebody last week, they said, well, what's, what is, what's different about your church? I said, well, what, one thing's different. If you don't like the Word, don't come, because we're going to have the Word all the way through it. Uh, I had somebody ask me one time, why do you read the Bible so much? Because <laughs> that's all we've got, folks. That's all we've got. You know, I, I mean, Bill Haynes' opinion, whether on politics or religion, doesn't, doesn't mean anything. And so it's good to read a lot of Bible through the service. That way, if I get up here and totally blow it, you still get something out of it. You still got something. And, and, and it was just great this morning. I went home, and this afternoon was kind of flipping through. You know, Sunday afternoons, the TVs are filled with, with shows. I was kind of flipping through one, and I... I stopped on one where they were celebrating Vacation Bible School. And they were having a big old time, and all the kids were down front, and they were singing the songs. Actually, they were playing the tapes, and the kids were kind of singing along with it. You couldn't hear the kids, you heard the tape. 
But it was, it was kind of funny because then the, the pastor stood up and talked about how great Bible school was and asked the kids, what did you enjoy most about Vacation Bible School? And, you know, I, I'm sure he was anticipating, saying, oh, it was the Bible stories, or oh, it was the songs we sang about Christ. It was, you know, it was the, the first thing came out and said, you're getting dunked in the dunking booth. And another said, yeah, and you're getting slimed. And another said, oh, I really liked it when so-and-so did such-and-such. Not a thing about the Scriptures. You know, that just reminded me that what you get people with, you have to continue with. If you draw them by the Word of God, all you got to do is keep giving them the Word of God. If you draw them by entertainment, if you draw them by gimmick, you got to get one gimmick a little better. you got to get entertainment knocked up another notch in order to keep it. That's why, folks... Yeah, call me backward, call me old-fashioned, call me primitive if you want to. But I, I want us just to be settled on the I want us to be settled on the gospel. That's what Paul is saying is so important here. That's what's vital. You know, I'll I'll put up with a lot of stuff if the gospel's being proclaimed properly, if the word of God is being expounded, if the focus in worship is on Him. You know, I, I can tolerate a lot of things if that's the focus. But if that's not the focus and it's all just a big game, it's all just to be cute, then I struggle with that. Always have, always will. I'm just what one pastor in North Georgia used to say. He said he and I both were there. said, we're just, how did he put it? Streaky-headed I can't remember the last word. It was streaky-headed something, and I was feeling for my streak in my head. But, but, you know, it's just a matter of Scripture's what we've got. The gospel's the message we have, and it's all we've got. And we must be sure, we must be settled, we must be firm on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel, again, is pictured in the table that we're about to come to. We're not to take it lightly. It's a very serious matter. We come to the table of the Lord. We come with a, with a, with a desire to grow in, in closeness to Christ. We come in a desire to reflect on what He's done. There's no magic in the bread. There's no magic in the juice. But we come to this table with a desire to say, Lord, Remind me about your sacrifice. Remind me about your gift. Remind me about your salvation. So when we hold that bread. We ought, think of, we ought to think about him hanging on the cross. And Jesus said, if you don't eat of my body and drink of my blood, you're none of mine. And so we eat of that. It doesn't become the body of Christ, we don't believe. Some groups do. But we believe it's symbolic of of who he is and we eat of that bread and we thank him Lord thank you for giving yourself on the cross we take that juice we don't believe that juice when it touches our lips becomes real blood it's symbolic Jesus said this is my body and this is my blood in the same way I could pull out a picture out of my pocket and say this is my wife and you not one of you not one of you would think He's married to a piece of cardboard. You'd know that's a representation. You'd know that's a symbol. 
She sits back there, but I can hold a picture over here and I can say, this is my wife. But I don't have a relationship with the cardboard. I have a relationship with my wife. We come to this table. This is my body. This is my blood. Take it and eat it. Do this in remembrance of all that I've done. Let's bow together as we pray. I'll have the deacons join me who are going to serve this meal. As they are coming, just bow your heads, prepare your hearts. Paul said, examine yourselves when you come to this table. Examine yourselves to be sure you're of the faith. It's to be taken only by believers. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, I, I, I ask you just to think about what it means, but let it pass by you. If you're here and you're a believer, though, whether you're a member of Grace Baptist Church or not, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I invite you to this table. I ask parents to uh, help their children understand why if they've not made a profession of faith and not been baptized, that they're not to participate in the, in the meal at this time. But talk to them later and talk to them about the significance of it. Use that as a teaching opportunity for the gospel, even in their lives, in their young lives. Father, we come before you tonight asking your blessing on this, this meal, this bread, and this juice. We ask you, Father, to, to teach us to remember you more fully to give ourselves to you more completely, that, Father, we might commune with you in the presence of one another around this table. Thank you, Father, for we pray in Jesus' name.